Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The gate to the kingdom is opening once more. This month sees the return of Lars von Trier's cult 90s series The Kingdom. The acclaimed filmmaker behind Antichrist, Melancholia and Nymphomaniac is picking up where he left off with The Kingdom Exodus, a brand new limited series available exclusively on Mubi from November 27th. A continuation, reboot, and revival of the original series, The Kingdom Exodus is a disturbing, darkly funny blend of supernatural ghost story and workplace sitcom, with Fontrier's signature anarchic streak once again at the fore. If you're new to The Kingdom, movie has you covered. Newly restored versions of The Kingdom 1 and 2 are streaming on the platform from November 13th and 20th. Episode 1 of The Kingdom Exodus is released a week later on November 27th, with new episodes dropping weekly on movie right up until December 25th. Consider it an early gift from your friend and ours, Lars von Trier. Head to Mubi.com to start streaming. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Hannah Strong. On the show this week, Noah Baumbach and some of his favourites reunite for White Noise. David Lynch's passions are explored in Lynch slash Oz. And on Film Club, the film that Michael Caine should have won an Oscar for, The Muppets Christmas Carol. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. David, Hannah, welcome back. I do always feel a bit strange welcoming you to this because I feel like this is ultimately you are the authority figure here. So it's sort of, I'm not sure what the power dynamic is now. Oh, you know, obviously preferred to have other people on and, and a more sort of rich and diverse array of voices. But at the same time, you know, I want to muscle in. I want to, I want to have a, have a chance on the, on the old soapbox. <laughs> Yeah, well, we've, we've got you on a lot in the next coming weeks. We've got some cool Christmas specials coming up. Uh, we've got end of the year to kind of look back on together, which will be fun. Avatar 2. But yeah, is there anything else that you're kind of cooking up in this festive period? Um, not really. I'm, I'm, I think in terms of like Christmas movies, I, I know this is a bit, a bit, a bit of a cop out, but like I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, pro- I'm, I'm actually catching up with a lot of the, um, festival things that i missed from the autumn season because i didn't get to go to venice this year or toronto and then during the london film festival we had a big magazine deadline so i'm now sort of like hoovering up things that i wasn't able to catch when they first played and that's really cutting into my uh you know my the time that i would otherwise give to watching uh, christmas themed movies the one that i'm actually most excited about my wife and i have got it like we've said as soon as december one hits which will have hit by the time you listen to this podcast that we're going to watch the Lindsay lohan one i can't even remember what it's called but it's like the netflix Lindsay lohan one where she does a dual role classic 
Yeah, I think it is sort of almost like the final boss of Netflix Christmas films, this Lindsay Lohan one. It's, um, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but it's basically Overboard, but in Aspen. Oh, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm already sold. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well up for that. <laughs> so have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I do. I do not play by the rules. I will start my Christmas movies in November. No issue. Yeah, no. Uh, and Hannah, what about you? What have you been up to? Uh, you know, not much. I just turned 30 for anyone listening. So, you know, that that was a big deal. Tell him about your swag. Oh yeah, no, we're in the, we're in the midst of it's that time of the year when um awards voting starts. So the studios are pretty aggressively campaigning to critics at the moment. It will end very soon and they'll move on to the guilds and start courting their favour. But at, at the moment at Little White Lies headquarters on any given day, about three parcels, four parcels will arrive for me full of miscellaneous kind of film merchandise that they just send you because they want you to vote for their film. It's a, it's really weird. I've never done it before. Well, I've, I've done voting before, but I've never been sent all the stuff. So it's it's been very interesting. And you do kind of feel a bit like, you know, you've been, you're being taken out for a nice meal by, by uh, someone trying to curry your favour. Only it's, it's much more low rent than that. It's just a lot of T-shirts and hats and the occasional bag of sweets. So that's kind of mainly where I'm at, trying to figure out where I'm going to put it all in my flat or, you know, who I can kind of give it to. <laughs> but you guys are just a few days away from the print deadline on the on the next issue. So, I mean, I'm surprised. You, you both look very fresh face considered, but how, how's that all going? Well, yeah, no, it's, it's going well. We're, the next issue goes to press just before Christmas. So we're, we're kind of beavering away at that with that at the moment in fact what the reason Han, Han is off on a special secret mission tomorrow that requires her to be up very early doors that is for our next issue so that that should be a fun one one other thing to mention bringing in all the chat of christmas and magazines we're launching a little thing on monday through our social channels where essentially if you subscribe to the issue and you know i would obviously heartily suggest that you should as a lovely christmas gift for your cinephile in-law slash Bezzy mate they come in with a free uh, a free cover print so like you get a little little free gift for if you if you if you uh, pick up a subscription pre-christmas yeah for, for the person who has everything exactly, for the indeed. film fan in your life <laughs> we should get a move on with this week's films first up white noise <laughs> Jack Gladney is a professor of Hitler studies at the College on the Hill, husband to Babette and father to four children. Things are thrown into disarray by a cataclysmic train accident that casts chemical waste over his town and is labelled the airborne toxic event. So Hannah, you and I saw this together a little while ago. It was the film that opened Venice. Uh, What did you think about it then? And has your kind of feelings about it changed in the months since? Uh, Yeah, I was very excited to um, learn that it would be opening Venice because it's a film that's kind of been on my radar for quite a long time. I was very curious about how Baumbach would tackle Don DeLillo. It doesn't really feel like a natural pairing to me. DeLillo's prose is very dense and quite complex and a lot of very long diatribes that kind of go off in all these different directions. And I don't, I think that Baumbach's filmmaking is quite straightforward in a lot of ways. And a lot more domestic, I would say, than a lot of Delillo's work. I mean, White Noise is a kind of domestic novel in some regard, but 
we'll get onto that in a minute. But yeah, no, I was very excited about this. I love Adam Driver and I was very excited for the Gerwig acting return. We haven't seen her kind of do a bit of acting in a while and um i was a little bit kind of skeptical about the casting i do think that driver and going are a little bit young for these characters who are supposed to kind of be in their 50s maybe maybe late 40s um but i was very taken with it i think it's a much more successful adaptation than i maybe expected it to be but i feel like i'm dunking on bound back here which is not not the case um i i just think that I really was kind of a bit nervous and I wasn't a huge fan of Marriage Story. So I was kind of on the back foot with him anyway. And I recently watched Kicking and Screaming for the first time and I really like hated that film. So I was already kind of not really sure what to expect, but it kind of took me by surprise and it appeals to so many things that I love. I'm I'm a real like pessimist (laughs) and um i love an end of the world apocalyptic riff and this very much you know you can kind of tell it was made in the pandemic because it is so preoccupied with death and it does center around this incident involving this massive chemical spill and they're all wearing masks and there's all the kind of air of panic um so i hate saying that something is timely but it is it's very much you can kind of see why baumbach might have being interested in making this film at this point in history and yeah I was, I was very taken with it it's so it feels really different stylistically as well it's so colorful and and so kind of he, he always goes for kind of realism and this is very like hyper stylized everyone talks like that they're in a book <laughs> they talk with this kind of cadence which I think doesn't feel Baumbach-y but I settled into it very like easily and he's got such an amazing cast here you know obviously like Driver and Gerwig are always I don't think I've ever seen them give a bad performance but the, I, my real like MVP is Don Cheadle he's just so delightful in this film yeah he's got that real kind of jazzy energy where he can do that it's almost kind of a bit Catherine Hepburn-esque that sort of really rhythmic way with this sort of rather dense dialogue but yeah to me I, I really like this I think this is probably my top tier bound back for me no Scorsese always says that you should try and make films that are very personal to you but I actually think he could do with making films like this that are a lot less personal than uh, some of his other fare. But uh, David, were you also coming into it like me, like having never read the novel, or did you have quite a strong sense of what Don DeLillo's novel was? Yeah, I I actually had read it in the summer this year, so before it played in Venice. And I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of his, and I've read a couple of his books anyway, so it wasn't by no means a kind of chore to do that. And obviously very happy to have picked that one up and ticked that one off the list because it's rightly deemed to be one of his vital texts. I would, you know, I think it's it's funny when you when you read a book ahead of a kind of impending screenplay. I tend to envisage the actors in the role as I'm reading the book, and and sort of think about what scenes might look like with people and the faces of the people, the actors that's kind of there in my head. And it was weird because, like, just to give another example, in 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 Cannes this year. Claire Denis made a film called Stars at Noon by Denise Johnson. Sorry, an adaptation of his novel, The Stars at Noon. And I read it at a time when Robert Pattinson was cast as the main role. And it was funny because I read the book with Robert Pattinson in my head. But then when the film came, it wasn't Robert Pattinson. It was it was Joe Alwyn. And, and 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 I think that might have been one of the root causes of my disappointment in that one. But so that's a little side observation about the kind of hazards of reading novels before Um, watching movies but even after Venice and even after reading reviews 
I was still a bit like unsure of like, what is this film? The way people are describing it and the way it seems to be kind of presenting itself is all over the map. I can't tell if it's a kind of slightly weirdo comedy or whether it does have this kind of mainstream appeal or what kind of movies it's channeling. And it's really interesting. Like, I think I saw it like a couple of days after Jean-Luc Godard died, actually. Which, which was kind of bittersweet because it does on some level feel like a, an homage to, to his film Weekend, which is kind of like deals with this kind of, it's looking at societal breakdown and the apocalypse, but then how that is filtered through our kind of bourgeois obsessions and the, the way that we've all kind of learned to live our life. And there's lots of focus in the film on consumerism and capitalism and, and how we're defined by our jobs and our roles and wanting to kind of break out of them a bit. And it did on that sense feel like, you know, I'm sure I haven't, I, I'm, I'm not sure I've read an interview where he's mentioned it, but there's no doubt that he had ingested the sort of spirit of, of weekend while making this film. But then at the same time, it really is through and through got this kind of American goofiness to it which I think is just very charming. And on some levels, it plays like a kind of Chevy Chase National Lampoon's film where you've got all this kind of breakdown happening and the family uh, unit are reacting it to it in this way that is very kind of sealed off. And they even have their big kind of walnut dash panelled car that they drive around in, which has got that kind of vacation vibe to it. And I find it really funny, actually. I, I, I don't know if it, it's just me in my sort of dotage getting very kind of jaded and and cynical but like it's hard to think of a film this year that I've laughed at more I mean just some of the some of the line deliveries and some of the kind of comic set pieces they're just done in a way that you kind of get a sense of like yeah Noah Baumbach knows his business he knows how he knows how to edit these things and how to write them and how to and how to direct them as well and yeah I mean final thing I would say echoing Hannah it's very it's a very different type of film for Noah Baumbach he's someone who is like you'd kind of ally with the Bergmans and the Woody Allens and people who do this quite sort of like quite intellectually inclined psychoanalytic films about psychological studies and relationships and analysing how people interact with one another. And this is very different. This is more like, you know, again, I'm throwing in references here, but there is a kind of like early Spielberg vibe to the whole thing and that's that's something that has been mentioned quite a lot that it does have this kind of in the same way that Spielberg's early films and indeed his new one the Fablemans are all about like kind of dissolution of the family unit and then the dissolution and then the kind of reconstruction of the family unit in a different form this also sort of takes that structure as well and I think that Baumbach has almost like he sort of acknowledged that and and has stylistically given us quite a sort of Spielbergy film in the way that he directs certain like scenes of like family interactions and family life. It's very you know lots of like overlapping dialogue. It's very kind of Spielbergy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a lot of things all at once to the point where I think sometimes when you talk about it, it sounds like you are talking about a made up film. <laughs> where, you know, there's sort of there's all this existential dread and questions around like what the commitment of marriage really means and death and apocalypse and then you know Hitler's mum versus Elvis's mum as a sort of academic rap battle uh, <laughs> musical numbers <laughs> Hannah for you did that sort of like quite a lot of vacillation in kind of tonal shift uh, work for you yeah I think um, it, it surprised me how well it worked especially because I don't think of Baumbeck as being someone who really plays the genre that much I mean I, we had the company scene in a Marriage Story which is like my highlight of that film so um, I think that's maybe an example of him kind of 
trying something a little bit different because that obviously feels like such a stagey moment in an otherwise very kind of like realistic scenes from a marriage style kind of breakdown so I I was actually like quite you know excited to see him do something a bit different Um, the whole kind of like third act or, or a good portion of the third act is almost like a kind of there's like a horror edge to it. It's in this very dank apartment that's kind of green and there's this confrontation between Adam Driver and this mysterious character who's kind of the the MacGuffin who they've been kind of trying to like find. I I mean, I guess it's, a, you know, when you're working from really good source material, it's, it's almost easier in a way. But I, I think that Baumbach was was kind of, you know, he had a bit of an uphill battle with this one because the novel is so dense and there are things that he had to cut out. But it does gel in a way that I found very satisfying and very interesting. I don't think you can be bored watching this film. I think it's got a real kind of like pace to it, which I enjoyed. And it moves from the kind of world of academia to this suddenly life-changing cataclysmic event and then back again in a way that I found like not only like satisfying, but quite novel. Because I think with these kind of, you know, end of the world movies, we get very used to the rhythm of like, here is life before here is life during and here is life after. Oh my God, it's so different. But what this film is suggesting is, oh, maybe the world just carries on after everything goes <laughs> goes wrong. You know, I think it's actually kind of has more to say about the world we live in than a lot of kind of the, the films that have tried to do pandemic cinema. I think this idea of death and these big kind of natural changes is something quite banal is like scary in its own way. And and I appreciated, you know, the, the kind of acknowledgement this film has of like how mundanity is both comforting and terrifying in, in its own way. And uh, I mean, fundamentally, it's a love story. And these two central characters love each other so much. And their whole thing is, I don't want to die before you. I'm so scared I'm going to die before you. And I just thought that was very romantic. And yeah, I mean, I would walk to the ends of the earth for Driver and Gerwig. I think they have such a, an amazing screen presence together. And Baumbach really like, I know some people take issue with directors who keep working with the same actors, but I think they have such a kind of like strong chemistry as a little trio. I don't really see why they would want to work with anyone else. <laughs> Uh, so, David, we should probably get some scores on this in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. Yeah, I would probably say like four, five, four, because, yeah, my anticipation was quite high. All the all the kind of elements suggested that this was going to be a, a, at the very least interesting. I had a really good time watching this film. And I think as as Hannah says, it's got it's got this slightly more, I guess, somber third act that is purposely more downbeat than than the opening i think that if you accept it for what it is and look at what it's exploring i actually think that some of the best material in the film is in the sort of the final stretch particularly one incredible sequence which is like one of my favorite scenes of the year in which it's essentially a kind of extended two-way dialogue scene between gerwig and, and driver in the in a bedroom where she's kind of you know that there are some sort of major revelations about their lives that they kind of admit to one another and the way that she kind of spills the beans and the way that he reacts to it is it feels very authentic that's maybe a bit of a cryptic description but i'm trying not to spoil here so i'm really excited to see this one again i think the forfeit in retrospect is maybe because there was there is a lot to chew on and i'm not sure like it's it does feel like there's like material for like two or three normal films in there 
Uh, Hannah, what about you? Was it a case of you hated the film, but then you got the swag and then (laughs) you have been successfully bribed? I don't know that we can trust you, but what are your scores? No, I, I luckily I have the evidence in that my Venice review is very positive. So I've always been um, on board with this one. Um, it's it's falls across the board for me. I yeah, I rewatched it the other evening and it's still delightful. Um, have to give a shout out to the end credit sequence, which I think is probably the best end credit sequence of the year. Uh, I won't spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen the film yet, but it's just a really delightful moment, and everyone in the cast is kind of clearly like having a really good time, a very unbound back end sequence and uh, has a new LCD sound system song, which is like an absolute bop. And if that won best original song at the Oscars, I would be just kind of over the moon. So very much enjoyed it and very glad to see Don Cheadle getting to do like some good comedy again. I'm always just so happy when he gets to flex that muscle because he's such an amazing comic actor. Yeah, I have to agree that end sequence is amazing. I think lots of people seem to find it really fun. I was in floods of tears with that end sequence. But yeah, no, it really worked for me. I think probably falls across the board as well. I'm sort of, I've I've got an intense fear of death. I think about it all the time. I have um, a marriage that I'm very attached to. So I think like, I, I love this whole central concept of sort of that you're sort of existentially tying yourself to a partner's mortality um, with that union. I was really, really pleasantly surprised because like you, Hannah, I wasn't a huge fan of Marriage Story, but this this was just great fun and it was and it wasn't dumb fun. Next up, Finch Oz. Victor Fleming's film The Wizard of Oz is one of David Lynch's most enduring obsessions. This documentary goes over the rainbow to explore the technicolor through line in Lynch's work. So David, famously, it is um, pretty pointless as an exercise to ask David Lynch a question about his work. So we do have to do quite a lot of guessing as to what his intentions are. Um, Do you think this sort of works as getting under the hood of all of the symbolism and weirdness in his films? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny that you think that conceptually this film is maybe built on like the sand foundations because although he does allude to it, in interviews and you know they've done it there's a bit of detective work that they do where they they find a picture of his studio where he's got like a a glossy black and white photo of Dorothy on the wall and there there are lots of you know they've dug out like direct references to to Wizard of Oz in his in his movies so that basically taking a punt on this and saying yeah we think there's enough there to go on but that he's never just said outright this is a major influence on my film and that all these references are, you know, the key to, to unlocking what I do. But what this film is essentially is, I think you'd describe it as an essay film, um, which is a kind of form that's quite prevalent online. Usually you kind of see these things on YouTube. And in fact, Little White Lies produce many of them on our uh, YouTube channel, if you wanted to go and see them. But yeah, and these things are a kind of visual opportunity to explore elements of pressing themes or obsessions or little things we notice about a filmmaker and they often support kind of I guess what you would call like auteurist readings where you have visual references that link films together or present a kind of through line of this is what makes this director this director because they 
keep doing this or they keep referencing this or they keep using this motif. What this film has done is it's kind of gathered up a bunch of people, some filmmakers, some critics. They get to narrate their own little kind of mini chapter of about 10, 15 minutes that focuses, I want to say, on different aspects of this relationship between David Lynch and The Wizard of Oz, but there's not really any specific delineation between the six it's just it's more just like personal takes and some of them are interesting like as a film I don't think it really works at all like I think that some have understood the brief and some definitely haven't but that doesn't necessarily preclude it from not being entertaining like for instance like there's a there's a whole section from John Waters which is really fascinating on his own relationship to Wizard of Oz and his own and how his films and Lynch's films crossover and and his relationship to Lynch but doesn't necessarily give much on Lynch and Oz and how that overlaps there are some kind of more academic ones there's like the critic Amy Nicholson has a section at the beginning called wind where she's sort of looking at the sort of atmospheric crossover between Lynch and um, Wizard of Oz and it's interesting but maybe a little bit dry my two standouts were MVP by a long shot for me was was the filmmaker Karen Kusama who is just really like laser focused on the brief she just delivers lots of really sharp insights very articulately um expressed it really really opens out this relationship and really keys into what it is about what what the meaning of this crossover is and i also think the the other really good one is is by filmmaker david lowry who kind of closes things out his is maybe a little bit more kind of all over the place. I think it's quite charming and there's definitely a, a, an attempt to focus on the brief. Inevitably, he brings in his own films and readings as well and how essentially moves into it to this idea of like, well, all filmmakers are influenced by something in some kind of subconscious way, which is a bit of a sort of like stating the obvious in the end, even though it's nice to see that represented visually. But yeah, it's a strange film. I don't think it necessarily needed to be more than like a 15 minute film all in to to really state what it needed to state. But I, I didn't have a bad time watching it. Yeah, I, I think you had a more sustained energy than I did having it because I definitely liked Amy Nicholson's The Best, but I think that was just because it came first and I just became, you know, kind of increasingly tired of it. But Hannah, what about you? Did any like great moments or segments stand out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult. Just generally documentaries about filmmakers are difficult because most of the time the subject is more interesting than the documentary itself. And especially with essay films, I think it's even harder because there is like, I, I do wonder why this got to be a film and it wasn't just kind of on YouTube or something. I guess it's, you know, it's because of the high profile town involved. It's interesting. It's a very interesting subject. I love David Lynch. So, you know, it, I, I did enjoy kind of all these like, clips of him just like refusing to kind of talk about his work um that were that were very funny there's a great clip of him talking to mark commode and mark commode's like oh am i am i in the ballpark and he's like no <laughs> which i very much enjoyed um so th- that was fun I'm, i very much enjoyed the john waters section and then the david lowry section i think because the david lowry section really like speaks to kind of a wider truth about filmmaking. He says that all filmmakers are essentially making the same film over and over, and the way to understand their filmmaking is to understand the thing that they're obsessed with. And it's not that David Lynch is obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. He, it's more that he's obsessed with the kind of things that 
are in the wisdom was, if that makes sense. So this idea of home, this idea of parallel realities, which are all kind of subjects that do come up in the various chapters of Lynch Oz. And I think that's a really like interesting way of looking at filmmaking and particularly looking at like auteurs. Larry brings up Spielberg and he brings up like his connection to Spielberg's work and how he's been kind of like sneaking in little references to Spielberg his whole life. And that to me, like... I hadn't really thought about filmmaking as like looking for the clues that let us understand a whole filmmaker's filmography and what kind of higher truths they're trying to grasp at. I think is like quite a fun one and it might change the way I kind of think about films when I'm watching them in future. The thing that I'm very preoccupied with is that I, I wasn't expecting to see clips from Back to the Future as much as I saw them in this film. Like there are so many mem- mentions of Back to the Future here and, and then there's like they, they mention it and be like, oh, it's not a very Lynch in film. No, well, why are you mentioning it then? Like, if it's there's a lot of kind of like just little diatribes where I was like, this film is nearly two hours, and I don't think it needs to be quite as long as it is. I think there's definitely ways they could have made it a little bit more succinct, which I might have ended up with, you know, kind of different length video essays, which kind of might have felt a bit disjointed. Yeah, there's just a few kind of bits where I was like, oh, I think the kind of narrator or the the writers of these essays are being a little bit self-indulgent. And I will say as well, which is not a spoiler, but um, this is now the second film I have seen this year, which has a clip from Avatar in it when I wasn't expecting a clip from Avatar to be in there. So like, what is going on? Like, wh- who is James Cameron paying? Like, I, I don't understand how Avatar 2 will be the third time I've seen Avatar in some capacity on a screen this year. <laughs> Wow, the th- the things we do for our in, uh, for, for our work, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there is like a strangeness to kind of having a podcast where we were talking about films or writing about films and this stuff. With a film like this, it just feels like we've gotten to the point of dancing about architecture because it's like there's the Wizard of Oz and then there's the David Lynch's view of it, and then it's the these people and their opinion of it, and now we're talking about that, and I feel so far <laughs> removed from like substance at this point I again I didn't not enjoy it I just kind of felt like I didn't understand really what the point of its existence was I think that about a lot of video essays I mean it was definitely enjoyable to like even though I'm very familiar with his films and work just seeing the clips again in good quality and seeing that the kind of love for like you know the eighth episode of Twin Peaks The Return and that was really nice I'd say one thing that that upset me though is which was very strange considering what short shrift the straight story get like barely any mention in the film and it's like guys it's a guy in 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 a kind of possible death haze going on a on a journey down a road on a on a lawnmower it's like Lowry talks about that quite a lot he, he talks about it a tiny bit but you know it's really skipped over i mean they really focus on like the the idea of talking about lynch you have to acknowledge the idea of him him sort of skipping between these kind of um dream states and rea- and and realities and the joy of his films is that he's not telling you you know which is the dream which is the reality which is which is the projection and which is the fantasy so you, you know like it's it's just his films are so exciting because it's the game of trying to guess where you are but then it, at the at the same time it you know the film really hammers that home and and maybe without kind of looking at some some further aspects of things like straight story i just think the straight story erasure is is un- unacceptable <laughs> 
was surprised how little they talk about Eraserhead as well, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's the film that, for me, that he's talked the most about as well in terms of, like, what his intentions were and how he made it. So, like, he's been the most open about it. I mean, I guess it's kind of... That's probably one where it's quite difficult to see the obvious parallels in that the whole thing seems to be taking place in, in this kind of disconnected universe, I guess. But then you definitely... The woman behind the radiator does have, like, you know fairy vibes and he's called it his most spiritual film i mean there's a rejection of domesticity in 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 both there's a sort of anyway i i we we cannot do this we cannot do an extra essay <laughs> on where we think that david lynch and the wizard of oz crossover yeah after, after two hours of it i i, I must say I, I i simply refuse um but so let's get some scores on this before we move on to film club hannah do you want to go first yeah, um, I think it's probably threes across the board. Uh, it's not one that I will kind of revisit, but I think for anyone who's really like into Lynch, it's a good kind of a curio, you know. It is nice to see the clips and to kind of see them in this context. I like, there's like a split screen thing that they do quite a lot where you can see the footage from The Wizard of Oz with the footage from the David Lynch films. And I enjoyed that quite a lot. <laughs> I do think Amy Nicholson's is very weird because she just brings up a wonderful life. <laughs> and there's like a whole thing about it's a wonderful life. And I was like, okay i guess that's my that's my little <laughs> just what there was a lot of me kind of just thinking like i wish i got this opportunity to just kind of make this video essay about just something that i've clearly had on my mind and like wanted to get out there you know that's that's the vibe i had from this but um not like a taxing watch at all i think it's um a perfectly enjoyable film and it is like it's nice. I mean, I think I find it quite satisfying as a viewer to go when I'm rewatching my favorite directors to find those kind of like recurring motifs or cinematic illusions. I always, I always find those little kind of now we call them Easter eggs, of course, but I always find those things fun about movie making. So yeah, no, perfect, perfectly fine little documentary. We've got some really good poster quotes for this one, haven't we? <laughs> God. I mean, I, I have to say the th- the moment that I found most amusing was the Amy Nicholson one because at one point she points out that the wind sound in The Wizard of Oz <laughs> isn't actually wind sound. It's a load of people going, woo, if you listen very carefully. I did enjoy and that. I immediately yeah. did want to go watch it. David, what about you? I'd probably say, yeah, similar take. I'd, I'd say it's a three, 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 two. It's interesting enough, but I think I'd probably would have rather listened to it as like, you know, seen it as like six little podcasts little video essay series online rather than one big hulking thing which is too just too much in the end yeah I do, I do feel like probably little white lies readership or listenership and david lynch fandom as a venn diagram is a circle so we are probably the target audience for this but yeah i'm sort of around the same three three two vibe which is a shame because obviously it's a fascinating subject matter from uh, one of our most mysterious filmmakers Next up, Film Club. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Muppet characters tell their version of the classic tale of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Ebenezer Scrooge, an old miser who dislikes Christmas, is visited by spirits who foretell his future and share secrets from his past and present, which helps change his view on life. So, David, I've watched this approximately a thousand times. Um, I believe that this is your first time watching Muppet's Christmas Carol? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's interesting, actually, because like, I have a young daughter who's four. And we went to the Prince Charles Cinema recently and, and they had trailers for Muppet Christmas Carol, which they're, they're showing as part of the obligatory seasonal re-release. And we kind of had a conversation. Oh, would, would she like this? Do you think it would be too much for her? Like she's not massively, you know, into live action films at this point. Only one that she's really liked is Lyle Lyle Crocodile, which we, you know, we, we, we waxed lyrical about a few weeks back. So this was actually when we were sort of, had, we had our little conversation about who's going to go on each pod. When I saw that you were doing Muppets Christmas Carol, I was like, oh, perfect. This is this is the opportunity for me to do a kind of like a cine recce, if you will, and sort of watch it and see if I thought it would be worthwhile to take her. The, the answer I, I have actually is two twofold is that the first thing I'll say is like, obviously, it's very good. Secondly, I would say, I'm not quite sure that it would land with her because it is it's actually a little bit firstly, it's a bit more of a sedate film than than I was expecting. It doesn't have the kind of madcap comic, you know, Muppet antics you you get from all the kind of earlier films. And it's quite it's very like it's really taken the the source material the Dick, the Dickens source material very seriously and it kind of pl- it plays a lot of it with quite a straight bat even though it's kind of presented in in its kind of unique muppets way with with songs and th- th- there's actually a lot of it that I I think that she she might find a bit boring because it's actually dealing with like real issues and real social issues and about like a character who's lear- learning the error of his ways that character is obviously uh Ebenezer Scrooge as as played by by Michael Caine and he really you know it's that performance has really got to be a kind of I mean it's hard to judge it against much but it's it seems to me that must be some kind of benchmark for like human puppet interaction acting the way that he gives his his Muppet co-stars he he he's dealing with them in the most kind of empathetic and humane way imaginable and uh you know that he sees them you know as they are presented as 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 the makers hope we would he he kind of sees them as real living beings 
and interacts with them in, as such and it just kind of lifts everything and I get in it's it's weird because you, you you maybe think from the outset oh it's Michael Caine you know he did Jaws the Return instead of going to pick up his Oscar and he's you know he he was always about like how much am I getting for this and do I get to go to like Barbados to shoot the film and yeah this and as such he you know his CV is peppered with these kind of like cash in you know I need to retile the the swimming pool movies and and this one you maybe think from the outset oh god here we go another Kane need needing a bit of extra extra pocket money but no this feels like you know this is this is one of his kind of actory uh examples of him him being a great actor so yeah bravo yeah I, there's there, there's something about how committed he is that kind of suggests that he really is putting his all into this committed. performance it doesn't and, and feel like he's half-assing it at committed all committed and sober <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is, i mean when you think of what the actual experience of acting on that set must have been like because the number of bodies that there must just be lying out of shot puppeting these things it, it's a kind of miracle that he didn't go mad because you imagine spending three months or so which i guess is what i'd expect this took to shoot with kudos to michael kane um although i have been actively supporting this film for since i was about seven so and watching it every christmas so you know i i at least have been acknowledging his fine work in this and what about you is this one of your kind of christmas ritual films or were you a newbie as well no, not a newbie at all. Again, yeah, this came out, um, when was it? Early 90s. So, yeah, this was like a hardcore part of my childhood as well. And my whole family are like Muppet people. We love the Muppets. So um, I think this is definitely the best of the Muppet movies, I would I would dare to say. Um, I think, I mean, in terms of David talking about introducing children to it, I think that Muppet treasure island is probably less po-faced it's, it's more zany so i think kids might get along with that a little bit better but this this is just such a joy i mean it's a very good introduction to the work of charles dickens we have gonzo narrating it as charles dickens with some assistance from rizzo the rat which is just such a like i, I really enjoyed their kind of occasional asides they kind of pop in and out a bit like rosencrantz and gildenstern <laughs> just kind of like pop up to like kind of move the story along but yeah i mean it's a different difficult film to hate i don't think i would trust anyone who doesn't like this film because it's just it's just a christmas carol but there's muppets like that is you know it's already a really great story about greed and about why um socialism is uh something we should be striving towards as a society but um you then add kermit the frog and miss piggy and animal and suddenly like you know it just makes you smile and it's funny because you know talking about white noise and like kind of depressing you know end end of the world and uh, everything i think this is a real kind of like tonic and yeah i do think michael kane's performance is just such a joy to watch because he's just so invested in it he is as invested here as he is in get carter or alfie you know he's like committed he's earning that paycheck he came to set and was like say no more guys the muppets are real i am gonna treat kermit and Miss Piggy and Stadler and Waldorf with the reverence and respect that they deserve as my colleagues. And, I, you know, like, I think we just need a bit more of that today. I think we need a bit more professionalism when it comes to uh, Muppets. And um, it did make me feel like I was like, man, it just made me realise kind of how disappointing the modern Muppets films are. Like, 
and I liked them. I think that the most recent ones were fine, but this one is just, yeah, everything about it is just such a kind of pleasurable experience, even though it's not kind of this like zany goofball terrain, which I think that people usually kind of expect the Muppets to operate in. It's just such a kind of a, a, a charming film. And I, I really ride for the songs in it as well. David and I had a disagreement about this because he doesn't think the songs in it are that good. But I think that the songs in it are... No. I think that the, all, all but the last song, which I think is quite naff, but like the Ebenezer Scrooge song and One More Sleep Till Christmas are like all-time songs. Great, great, great stuff in there. The Marley and Marley one <laughs> absolutely slaps. Whoa, 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 whoa. As a repeat offender... Layla. And so when Kate, my wife and I watched the film last night and we both agreed that like after a few decent songs and it is, it's John Williams after a few good ones, it gets quite maudlin. And, and, and I know that kind of, it, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily that that's like has a negative impact on the film because it's quite, you know, the, the subject matter is quite serious and it's trying to reflect that. But just the songs themselves are a bit dull and a bit, you know, a bit unex. Like the lyrics aren't great, and I don't know. Like the one about Tiny Tim was was a was was a low point for us. Um, yeah, no, what, I, I will accept thought? that the one about Tiny Tim is is um, we're getting a little overly sentimental, and I and I think yes. actually the sentimentality is, is is the issue with some of the more recent muppet fair Mm. because it gets so kind of tied up in nostalgia for the muppets whilst i was just watching it every friday night because they had a wonderful show called that was just called the new muppet show that was kind of supposed to be like a like a late night show a parody of that and i would watch that as a child and absolutely loved it but yeah it's funny that you mentioned that this is an introduction to dickens because this was my introduction to dickens and i don't know that i've seen a better adaptation of a christmas carol since oh no i don't think there has been one and and there hasn't been one certainly that features i'm gonna i i just googled these lyrics because i was i was laughing at them earlier in the song where they're introducing scrooge there's <laughs> this like amazing song where all the like locals are singing about what a what a wrong in scrooge is and there's <laughs> there's this bit where they say he charges folk a fortune for his dark and drafty houses as poor folk live in misery and then these little mice appear and they go it's even worse for mices <laughs> just made me laugh so much and then and then they repeat it later where like later in the song they're talking about you know how awful he is to work with and they say don't ask him for a fa- for a favor because his nastiness increases no crust of bread for those in need no cheeses for his mises and i just like you know john john williams and um it was was it john i don't know if it was john williams i, I whoever it was that was doing the lyrics for these songs like really was on one that day like that's just incredible incredible <laughs> rhyming work and it just it just yeah i mean the listeners are probably probably think i'm insane but you know it i it just really is like the reason for the season in my in my eyes it, it makes you sorry, it's, it's it's paul williams oh paul, it's paul williams. williams not john williams sorry i've got i've got that wrong it's it's paul i just think i was like john williams didn't I so one thing I was going to say what, what, from watching this film is like, and, and just from, just responding to what you say about like, there hasn't been a better adaptation since is I wonder, would there be scope for like a kind of like Guillermo del Toro's A Christmas Carol where all the ghosts are like, you know, it's a real like gothic version of it where like the ghosts are covered in blood and it's, 
it's quite, you know, and, and like the tiny Tim, like Bob Cratchit's house is like a, a re- you know, it's a hovel and tiny Tim is kind of desiccating and, you know, like, I, I, I wonder if there's, if there's some sort of like horror version of the film that's really kind of like, cause it's quite a despairing, potentially quite scary story. But from my experience, from like the Alistair Sims version, which I've seen and this one, it's, it's often played for kind of jolly, holly jolly laughs. And, uh, know, this bit does have a whole section where they're talking about picking out a grave for Tiny Tim. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well mo- I, mostly, mostly. Children with leprosy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm kind of, I think that I, I I slightly wince at the thought of anything getting another gritty remake. So I, I, as much as I love Guillermo del Toro, um, I don't know that I need that. I think a better question is, and it's a question that many people have asked before on the internet, but um, I would like to put it to you two. If you had to pick a book or a film to be a Muppets version where, you know, you have a cast of Muppets and just one human actor, uh, what would you go for? Um, Gosford Park and bring back Clive Owen. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's, That's... That you that you, you you said that so quickly that I'm worried that that's been on your mind. Um, no, I genuinely it did just come to me. <laughs> I would I would pay so much money to see that. I mean, just from this this year, I would I would definitely watch a band Shoes of Inner Sharon remake where Colin Farrell is the only human, and you know we have like Stadler Waldorf as uh, as Colm and uh, Miss Piggy would play Colin's sister. I would yeah quite I think Colin Farrell and I I tweet about this earlier but I think he has something of a Muppet sensibility about him and would really commit to it in the same way Michael Caine does he, he would yeah I don't can't think of a book but just just which you saying Gosford Park makes me think that like Nashville is basically a Muppet <laughs> movie with, with people in it it's so it's like the reverse sweep oh my god it is would you wow. just have one that blew one my mind so much that. more than anything from the from the Lynch Oz film? <laughs> this is what we need to do. We need to make a series of essays for Little White Lies's YouTube <laughs> Muppets What Ifs. <laughs> yeah, and David, yours will be why Nashville is a um, is secretly a Muppet film. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email Truth and Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next week, it's Double Trouble in The Silent Twins, Guillermo del Toro's adaptation of Pinocchio, and for Film Club, more twins are up to no good, the film noir The Dark Mirror. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Hannah Strong. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Sanders. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.